amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Michael Vu and joining me on the BTK team today is Megan Akashup. Before we begin, let me make a quick plug for the YouTube channel. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, I'm confident you'll like the content there. We're running an ongoing series of journal cast episodes where you can quickly listen to the highlights of landmark papers in surgery. In a couple of weeks, I'll be releasing a YouTube episode on Reboa that I think is anticipated by a lot of you. And of course, you can always follow us uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Okay, so today we brought experts uh, to talk about medicine and surgery in space. I personally feel uh, like I've been like a little kid waiting for his birthday to come up. That's how excited I've been to talk about space surgery on the podcast. So so with us, uh, we brought Dr. Richard Williams and Dr. Carol Scott Connor. Uh, Dr. Williams, an Air Force general surgeon and aerospace medicine doctor by training, was NASA's former chief health and medical officer. He remains an active FAA senior aviation medical examiner, and he's currently the public health director of the Three Rivers Health District and the Eastern Shore Health Districts in Virginia. He also has over 4,000 hours of flight time on various aircraft, uh, which I felt was really impressive. Dr. Carol Scott Connor, she is uh, the Emeritus Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine. In fact, only the second woman to chair a surgery department at the time of her original appointment. A general surgeon and an anatomist by training, she served on NASA's Committee on Aerospace Medicine and the Medicine of Extreme Environments for over 20 years. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Williams and Dr. Scott Connor. Thank you. Um, so, I'd like to just know from the beginning, what, uh, what brought you guys into the medical career and then what subsequently brought you to NASA? Perhaps we can start with you, Dr. Williams. Well, Michael, um, uh, I guess as a really young guy through high school and so on and so forth, I would have loved to have been a military pilot. But in those days, um, refractive error uh, was disqualifying from uh, Air Force or Navy pilot training. So... Um, and it's probably the best thing that happened to me because I was able to uh, explore medicine, the potential for a medical career. And I think I've made a much, much better physician than I would have been an Air Force pilot. So, uh, so that's what piqued my interest in medicine to begin with. And then surgery, I thought that um, as I went through medical school, the, uh, the surgeons were always uh, amongst the most respected folks in the medical staff. Uh, they, they appear to me to have the best training, the highest levels of expertise. So being the best physician I could be, as, as well as being able to navigate my way through anatomy and through an operation, was very attractive. So, so that's why I went into general surgery. And I was, I was born with an unfortunate chromosomal abnormality that has dogged me my entire life. I have two of the X chromosome instead of having an X and a Y. And at the time that I went through training, uh, 
opportunities were more limited than they are now. And I also have a significant refractive error, so I never even thought about becoming a pilot or an astronaut or, or any of those exciting things. But when I went to medical school, I fell in love with surgery. You know, the, the surgical residents, because it's a five-year program, the chief resident is really the top of the pecking order in a lot of hospitals, and that certainly was that way at Bellevue. The chief surgical residents knew everything, did everything, went everywhere, and they really seemed to love what they were doing. I just fell in love with it. And uh, I like the way it, it occupies your head, your brain, your eyes, your hands, you know, the immediate gratification. I, 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 I just really love it. And how did you guys fall into, um, into NASA? Uh, Dr. Williams, when, when did you join the Air Force? I, I imagine that's pretty much how, how you got into, into space medicine. Tell, tell us about that. Sort of indirectly. I, I, was in, I was, went to medical school on an Air Force scholarship, health professions uh, scholarship program. I think I was the second year after the inception of that program many, many years ago. Uh, so I, I did my surgery residency in the Air Force, and I, I practiced uh, general surgery in a, in a variety of settings, from academic medical centers in the Air Force to small tactical hospitals attached to fighter wings. So in the process of doing that, I was very closely exposed to Air Force tactical aviation, meaning uh, the, the part of the Air Force that goes to war. And, and that's what I ended up uh, doing um, from Langley Air Force Base. I, I was selected as, uh, or appointed, I guess, not my idea, but it happened anyway, as commander of their 50-bed field hospital. And I went to the first Gulf War along with the first Tactical Air Force fighter wing to do that. And, and that kind of launched me into a, uh, a very operational focus um, op operational meaning military and, and high risk sorts of engineering operations. And, and that indirectly led some years later to an opportunity to, uh, to go with NASA after I did a residency in aerospace medicine. And how about yourself, Dr. Scott Connor? I was sitting in my office one day, I was chair of surgery, and I got a call from a former professor who was working at the Institute of Medicine. And he said he was looking for a surgeon to serve on a committee to advise NASA about health care issues. And there were at the time about 10 surgeons who were doing research in uh, parabolic flight, you know, up at the apex of the, of the trajectory when gravity is minimized and they were operating on rats and doing all kinds of things. And I rattled off their names and he said, yeah, we know about them. We can't use them because they get their funding from NASA and it's a conflict of interest. So I said, and this is the point that I want to put across to your listeners. I said, well, you know, if you can't find anyone else, I'd love to do it. So the point is, sometimes you just you just stick your neck out there. Never in a million years did I think I was qualified because I had not no prior experience with NASA. But um, you know, he didn't say no, and he didn't say yes. He said, "Send me your CV." And a couple of days later, I got a letter of invitation. In retrospect, it was 
it was a very fortunate appointment because I think being a general surgeon, you know about the kinds of problems that are likely to arise. I was very much involved in cancer. I was very much involved in trauma system development. I had an engineering background, undergraduate, and my dad was a rocket scientist. So I had a lot going for me. But if I hadn't had the nerve to stick my neck out and risk being rejected and volunteer, none of this would have happened. Yeah, you need to advocate for it for yourself, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you did you a really great job do. doing that. Yeah. Now, please uh, dumb it down as much as you can for people like me who have very little engineering background or know-how. Um, but if each of you could kind of go through and tell us a little bit about the day-to-day or the, I, I would assume it's more like a week-to-week sort of what you needed to do in your positions um, with NASA. What were you accomplishing? How were you advising them? What was your role? Well, I served on an advisory committee of the Institute of Medicine, which is kind of a think tank organization. And we, we served at the pleasure of NASA when NASA had a problem that they wanted us to deal with. Uh, we pulled experts together and came up with a report. The first one we did was on healthcare issues related to long-range space travel, for example, for a mission to Mars. And the question was really, what research do we need to do now to be ready to go when we go? Uh, What problems need to be solved? And there are some very significant ones. So that was the extent of my involvement. Um, Rich can give you a much better feel, I think, for what uh, the day-to-day involvement was when he was the chief medical officer. Can we, before we move to Dr. Williams, what so what are some of those issues with long-term travel to Mars? I'm curious. Well, the issues span the gamut from just making sure that your oxygen and food supply don't run out. Uh, you're sealed in a tin can. You can't resupply midway. At least we don't plan it that way. Those are those seem mundane, but they're they're very important. Um, Radiation exposure is significant. It's very high. Uh, And the psychosocial problems associated with isolation and confinement um, are significant. You start to lose bone and muscle mass when you go into microgravity. We have ways of uh, working on that. But uh, nothing about the environment is normal and everything about it is hostile. Dr. Williams, how about yourself? What was life at NASA like? Well, if uh, what would be of interest, I think, to surgeons, especially surgeons in training and early in their career, was is the contrast between what I did as a surgeon and in what I, I did both as a as an aerospace medicine specialist and in my time in NASA. So, in, in we all know what we do as surgeons. It, it's a highly demanding. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the pinnacle of, of medical expertise is general surgery. If you're going to be a good general surgeon, you need to be a good internist. You need to know about pediatrics. You need to know about OBGYN. You need to know all the surgical subspecialties. So you really have to be a good physician as well as a good surgeon to succeed in that arena. Um, in the aerospace world, um, it, it's there. there's plenty of adventure in general surgery, but there 
our adventures in different venues in the aerospace world. In the Air Force, for instance, on one day, I, I broke the sound barrier in an F-15 over the eastern test range out over the Atlantic Ocean. And that evening, I was diving uh, on, on a structure in the uh, Florida Keys to a depth of about 60 or 70 feet, all in one day. So so the, the variety uh, uh, in never knowing what you're really going to be doing um, in the, in the, was really attractive to me for the aerospace world. So, um, uh, that's why I did a second residency after the first Gulf war in, uh, in aerospace medicine. And that's how I got to NASA. So my job in NASA was chief health and medical officer. And by the way, Dr. Scott Connor served as chair of our, um, of our standing committee on aerospace medicine, medicine, extreme environments for, for many, many years. And she was a key member of our original and sentinel study called safe passage, which uh, was really a blueprint on the addressing the medical risks of a Mars mission. So my day-to-day life in NASA, it was mainly administrative. My job was policy and oversight space medicine policy. And that, that um, addressed all of the health risks that, that Dr. Scott Connor mentioned, radiation, microgravity-related health risks, psychosocial health risks, limitation of power and up mass, getting, getting material, material and people to space, fuel, resources, food, uh, medicines, the practice of medicine in space, all of those things were it was my responsibility to to create policy for but that notwithstanding being an administrative job many days i went to work and by the end of the day i ended up at johnson space center or kennedy space center on some sort of a task and i was a part of um of the engineering and safety oversight for the human spaceflight program so i think i was in the launch control center for 35 or 36 of, of NASA space shuttle launches. Uh, in addition to that, I was able to dive on the Aquarius um, undersea module owned by um, NOAA in the Florida Keys that we used as a, uh, an analog environment. And, and some of the telerobotic surgery work that's been done was done on that module. So mostly administrative, but from time to time, quite exciting travel and quite exciting things to do. A lot of international travel to Tokyo, Moscow, Europe, uh, Canada, and other places. It was, it was quite a ride. Wow, yeah, that's quite a career. I mean, the recruiter probably did promise that you'd see the world when you signed that Air Force contract, right? That's what they did when I signed the Army contract. <laughs> I, I saw it. <laughs> a lot of it. So uh, I, I want to talk for sure about uh, all these, uh, these major medical um, kind of problems that would plague deep space exploration. But first, actually, I want to know what is the current medical um, capability and technology like on, on our existing space missions, you know, basically to Earth orbit and International Space Station? Well, the, well I'm going to let Rich answer that, but I want you to think about this as he answers it. We're talking about low Earth orbit with the International Space Station. You get into real bad trouble, you can come back to Earth. Right. Now, if you're going to go to Mars, it could take you six months to get there. Say you're midway, the Earth is a tiny little blue dot in one direction, Mars is a tiny little red dot in the other direction. Somebody perfs a duodenal ulcer. 
what are you going to do? Well, you, first of all, even if you wanted to turn around and come back, you can't. The Earth's not where you left it. Yeah. It's gone on somewhere else in its orbit. You're committed. You're stuck with whatever you brought with you, whatever you packed, whatever you assumed you would be able to treat, and whatever you can MacGyver. So he'll tell you about what our capabilities are on the ISS. And then maybe we'll speculate a little bit about what you would want in your knapsack, your medical uh, little black bag. Uh, yes, exactly. Well, I, I think Dr. Scott Connor really set the stage well for this. Uh, the, I think the linchpin of our healthcare system in NASA uh, now and in the future is preventive in nature. It's our aeromedical um, certification system and the fact that our flight our flight surgeons act as the primary care physicians for the astronauts. So we, we seek to understand their health better than any other group of people on the planet. Uh, we seek to keep them in the best health that we possibly can and to prevent any, any disease that might arise in, in, uh, on the way to uh, wherever they're going or in lower orbit. So we, we, so we try to limit ourselves to, to illnesses and injury that might, result as a as a byproduct or due to an untoward exposure in space um, and uh, control everything else to the best of our ability. Obviously, we can't control things like, you know, perforated duodenal ulcers, appendicitis. That, 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 by the way, is a question Dr. Scott Connor might want to comment on later on. Um, th those sorts of things. Um, we so so we try to keep them as healthy as we can. In low Earth orbit, our philosophy is stabilize and evacuate. So we we do have the ability to to for limited rehydration in the case of serious Ill, injury. We have the ability to treat pharmacologically minor, relatively minor problems. Uh, we. Um, but for a major health incident, our plan would be to stabilize the crew member as well as we can, and then plan for a, an expeditious return within minimum 24 to 36 uh, to 72 hour time frame, depending on, on orbital dynamics and availability and, and seriousness of the condition and so on and so forth. So, so that's our philosophy in low Earth orbit. As we range farther out, that's going to have to change. We still would have some ability to temporize uh, an infectious disease, say, between here and, and, the, and the moon, um, depending upon the phase of flight. Uh, serious trauma on the moon, again, we'd have to stabilize. The evacuation period would just, would just get longer. But when we go to Mars, that's where we, we start speculating about what enhancement to the healthcare system we might need to uh, successfully do that. Overlying all of this are, are the ethics of, of um, decision-making, medical decision-making and resource-constrained and remote environments, which, which our Institute of Medicine colleagues advised us on through the years. But uh, in, when you have little choice with regard to uh, life-saving measures and, and medical treatment and so on and so forth, then then your ethical construct may change a little bit. And, and I think NASA still has to work some of those things out. 
I have a couple of follow-ups to what you were talking about. So, um, you know, it can take up to 72 hours. So in these situations where there is like a life-threatening emergency, I'm curious, has this actually happened? Have you, have you actually faced this? Um, and if you can provide any sort of case scenario of what has happened and how it was handled, um, I'd be interested to know in that. Yeah, I'm very delighted and proud to say that um, in the history of the U.S. space program and in with our uh, support of the International Space Station, and, and that's not only the United States, but our colleagues in, in Roscosmos and the, in the Russian Space Agency, our colleagues in Russia, they have a parallel structure to, to our structure here in the United States. Our colleagues from the European nations, from Canada, from Canada and from Japan. Those are the main partners in the International Space Station. And we have to date not had any necessity to perform a medical evacuation from the International Space Station. We have had a few um, illnesses, um, not much really in the way of injury, um, but there have been um, syndromes, if you will, that have emerged on the International Space Station the longer we stayed in flight, especially out to three, four, six months and then a year, uh, that, that are of concern that go beyond the initial baseline knowledge we had of, of um, you know, neurovestibular adaptation and um, bone demineralization and muscle weakness and, and those sorts of things that, uh, that Dr. Scott Connor mentioned earlier that accompany microgravity uh, uh, flight, as well as radiation. Um, and what, for instance, there's a, a syndrome that, that mimics uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension to, to some extent um, called space flight associated neuro, neuroocular syndrome, SANS, S-A-N-S is the current acumen, ac, ac, acronym, where you end up with uh, uh, optic nerve edema and uh, in increased intracranial pressures. Uh, and this probably has to do with, uh, di you know, cerebral venous uh, dynamic circulation, uh, central uh, cerebrospinal fluid balance. Uh, don't, don't know that we've worked out the radiology of it yet, but it absolutely occurs in a subset of people. Um, and, and then uh, you can end up with, uh, um, different central venous dynamics that, that recently identified may, there may be in real long space flight, a risk for venous thrombosis, especially in the, in the head and neck and upper extremities and chest that we did not appreciate before. So need more data on that. But so far we have not had to, to perform a medical evacuation. I'm very pleased and proud to say uh, from the International Space Station. You know, it, what you bring up is also probably where there's some considerations. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, why, what are the inhibit or prohibitory factors that inhibit us from being able to perform surgeries on the International Space Station? Obviously, gravity, the change in body's physiology, and these other um, kind of uh, changes in the bodies that occur while people are in space are... Uh, major considerations. Um, so can you speak a little bit more on that? To what extent have uh, you guys at NASA explored performing an operation in space 
Um, what are the factors that are really preventing that from being an advancement that happens anytime soon? And that may also lead into, as we talk about getting farther out, going towards Mars, these factors that have to be considered. Let me, let me take a simple example, and then I'll let Rich field this one. Nothing is easy in microgravity. Um, nothing is easy. So let's say you're going to do CPR on somebody. You get a pump on their chest, right? Well, first pump on their chest, you're going to fly backwards unless you're anchored. Let's say you want to put in an endotracheal tube. You have to anchor yourself so that you can do what you need to do. Um, nothing, nothing is easy. The farther we get from low Earth orbit, I think it's great we're going back to the moon, by the way. I really thought we'd have cities at the moon by on the moon by now, but we don't, uh, but we're getting there. I think it's great we're going back there because I think it's the next step and it, it kind of will let us prove some of these concepts and test some of these concepts because it won't be quite so easy to get people back. We'll have to do these things. It's not, uh, there is gravity on the moon, but it's reduced gravity. Things will be a little different. Let me ask you this question, this very basic question. Should every mission have a physician, and should that physician be a surgeon? Seems like a great idea, right? Hey, send a surgeon. Uh, send an older female surgeon. I'd, I'd like that even better. Um, well, suppose the surgeon gets sick. You have to really have everybody kind of cross-trained. Um, so all these things have to be thought through. Yeah, th those are great thoughts, Dr. Scott Connor. The, the the research agenda is is really driven by mission imperative. So, there the human research program, which is closely allied with astronaut health program, and um, is a subset of our engineering of our big engineering program management with regard to uh, the International Space Station. Um, they're focused on on trying to. Uh, understand and mitigate the specific spaceflight associated health risks. So their baseline assumption is that injury, illness, and disease is unlikely to happen. And so far, the evidence base, and mind you, the NASA is an engineering organization. So every single decision is, with regard to um, programs, are, are they're made with risk in mind, they're, they're risk-driven decisions, and they're made with uh, overall cost and upmass ability. You know how, how it, it's incredibly expensive to get anything into space, right? So, so it, it's a competitive environment for for what goes there. So, with a demonstrated 50-year track record of prevention working with regard to preserving the health of the crew for the, for, for the most part, overwhelmingly. The engineering program managers are, are not considering development of surgical ability in space at this point to be a high mission priority. Now, NASA's healthcare system is, so, but we're kind of limited to the occasional interface with rodents, I think, on Neurolab. Uh, back in the 19, STS-90, there, there was some surgery done on rodents in space within that particular mission. 
but um, so we're doing most of our of our uh, ideas and pioneering work and so on and so forth in analog environments as opposed to uh, on orbit. Um, however, as as we and I think that for the foreseeable future, uh, even going to Mars. Um, I don't. I don't know. It depends on the figure configuration of the of the vessel. It would be highly desirable. I, I firmly support Dr. Scott Connors' uh, idea of putting somebody who's skilled. General surgeon would be ideal as a uh, as as the crew medical officer on on such a mission, and some ability to uh, to deal with trauma and some ability to deal with. Um, with disease that cannot be addressed pharmacologically uh, would be highly desirable. And as time goes on and minimally invasive techniques mature and develop more and more, um, those considerations may well be viable for a Mars mission some, you know, 15 to 20 years hence. Uh, Certainly will, will be in space over the long run, our destiny is uh, humanity's destiny does lie in the cosmos, and we're going to have to translate surgery to space. There are some unique things. Um, uh, for instance, fluid gathers in balls in space spheres, right? So a, uh, a bleeding vein is not going it, to, it'll, <laughs> in some ways, it may be easier to see the anatomy because you'll be dealing with a big ball of blood as opposed to a pool of blood. <laughs> And the vein is bleeding at the bottom of the pool, right? So um, all kind of things need to be considered. But but our destiny, I guess the, the the people in NASA now, physicians in NASA now, are forward thinking. They're they're thinking about um, translating surgery to space, and that is one of their major missions. Okay, develop healthcare in space, but. The space flight part of that is is a long way away because we're in such intense competition with other resources, fuel and and some supplies, food and other things, right? That that have to go. So understanding that uh, resources and and capability would be limited in such a mission, uh, what would you bring with you um, today? If, if you had to go on a relatively deep space mission, um, perhaps to the moon or, or even to Mars? I, I guess if I was going to go, and if I was going to be the lucky uh, chief medical officer that was sent to Mars, um, and they told me that I could only take a certain number of pounds of equipment, I would, I would probably want a really, really good basic instrument set so that I could deal with lacerations and soft tissue injuries. And then I would want a state-of-the-art ultrasound with uh, the ability to do percutaneous drainage. And, you know, some of the things that are being done with ultrasound now are just amazing. Imagine uh, that you had an ultrasound unit which let you visualize a bleeding vessel deep in the body. And then once you visualized it, you target it, and you crank up that power to stun, and you thrombose that vessel percutaneously. Imagine you could do that. The the key word to keep in mind is austere environments. 
and and once you think in terms of austere environments, there are actually a lot of austere environments right here on Earth. And there's a lot of work being done on uh, how you can deal with situations in austere environments, whether it's the front line of a battlefield, whether it's the bottom of the ocean, whether it's a submarine on patrol during the Cold War when they didn't want to surface, um, or or uh, climbing Mount Everest. So there, there's a lot of information. Let's just take one example, okay? You're go- Let's say you're going to go to Mars, Megan, and let's say you still have your appendix because you've been very, very, very healthy. And you just signed up for this, let's round it off and say it's going to be a three-year mission. Now, the exact length depends on the orbital trajectory, blah, blah, blah. But let's just say you're going to be out of of touch for three years. Are you going to take your appendix with you to Mars? Well, it depends. I mean, the right answer, and there may not be a right answer, but it depends on a lot of things. What are the odds that you would get appendicitis in the next three years? What are the odds that if you got it, it couldn't simply be treated by an antibiotic protocol, which we're using more and more? If that failed, what are the odds that you couldn't be rescued with percutaneous ultrasound-guided drainage? It, none of this is, is simple. Um, you know, the, uh, the Australians used to require that the physician that they sent to overwinter in Australia with the uh, people who were on the Australian base, that physician who was typically a surgeon had to have had their appendix out. Because if the doc got appendicitis, what are you going to do? But I think, and Rich, you, you might know better than me, I don't think they do that anymore because we can handle appendicitis other ways. So, I mean, I love surgery. I love getting in there with my hands and, and messing around. But I think we're going to be doing a lot of um, non-surgical management. What I worry about are the soft tissue injuries. I worry about things like fractures. I worry about burns. You know, even a small burn the size of the palm of your hand is not going to heal. It's going to require skin grafting. Um, That's what I, I worry about. But as Rich said, it's all being statistically modeled, and uh, it's all probabilities and relative risk. Which is a great point about there's actually very few remaining, aside from like soft tissue injuries and things like that, um, surgical emergencies that can't be temporized with uh-huh. adjuncts that we've developed over the years. Um, so it's, a, it's very interesting to think about that, how appendicitis management has changed so much that there are antibiotics and, and you could do that instead of thinking about surgery first. I think things are, are changing and it gives us more options. And options are always good because then when you can talk about options, you can talk about trade-offs. And it's almost like going to the store with just a certain amount of money to buy groceries. Are you going to spend a lot of it on prime rib? Or are you going to get hamburger, which will allow you to get more meat? Assuming you're not a vegetarian. I hope I didn't offend anyone there. But uh, 
but you only have so much space and you can only afford to put so much mass into orbit and you've got to devote a lot of it to food and water and you know systems that are going to keep you alive and uh, so where do you put where do you put that money so to speak where do you spend it i asked this next question thinking about the logistics of I guess colonizing Mars and and how medical capability would have to be uh, developed quite a bit, um, you know, on Mars for for people to live there. So, are current Mars missions planned to be uh, one way? Um, like I've heard, like with the the Mars One project, which I actually haven't heard from that project in quite some time. I think they went uh, defunct. Uh, or are the plans to uh, send astronauts there and back? There's several models. One is a so-called Mars one way or Mars to stay. But the other model is to go and come back. And we discussed this with a panel of uh, current astronauts when I was on the Institute of Medicine, and none of them would sign up for a one-way mission. (laughs) So... uh, I would just say there are a lot of mission parameters. And uh, if I were signing up, I think I would probably want to come back. In, in this, in this uh, the strange world where all the astronauts really wanted to just live on Mars forever, uh, NASA would probably have to think of ways that they could become self-sufficient. How would they make you know, med- more medicine um, sure. or new, uh, more surgery tools, so the, the basic instrument um, set that, that you would bring yourself? Um, well, the instruments are easy because you can use um, computer-aided uh, fabrication techniques. That's, and, and you have to assume you would have that because you would have to make parts for, for things. You wouldn't carry spare parts for everything. Um, and of course, in, in that kind of a mission, you could send stuff ahead. You could pre-supply. Uh, there are actually designs that I've seen for devices that can fabricate drugs, much as we fabricate um, physical objects. So all these things are possible. And, and for sure, you know, you'd probably set up an, a, uh, an infirmary and an operating room and, and you'd want to be able to handle that because the length of time that you would be there and the, the probabilities would change. You see, the probabilities would, would then demand that you have some kind of capability. Do you think it's feasible at some point that we're going to establish colonies on on Mars? And I, I assume it, that such a thing would start with a one-way mission. Um, and- I, oh, if you take the long view, I think eventually, yes, we will establish colonies on Mars. Uh, I am not so optimistic that it will be in my lifetime. It could be in your lifetime. Um, I think that we are by nature explorers. I have gotten myself into trouble and I've gotten into arguments with um, space enthusiasts who say we should push for colonies on Mars because the Earth might not be inhabitable. We have such a beautiful planet here. We shouldn't trash it. We'd be much better off taking care of our planet than trying to go colonize a dead world that uh, 
it's just going to suck up resources and save a few people. But yeah, I think we're going to call. I, as I said, I thought, I honestly thought by this year, you know, when I was a kid and when I was your age, I thought that I would look up at the moon at night and with a telescope, I would see the lights of colonies. And we never went back. So it comes back to choices and where you put your resources. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to do it, but how long it's going to take or when we'll do it, I don't know. So, so let me comment on, on mission architectures. Uh, so right now, um, there in, in NASA, there, there are five or six major human spaceflight programs underway. There's the International Space Station program. There's the commercial crew program, which is already taking, you know, launching again from U.S. soil to low Earth orbit. And then, and then there's the deep space programs. Um, and this envisions, this is all lunar-based at this point. It envisions a, a small orbiting station in, in a distant retrograde lunar orbit called Gateway, and Gateway is a staging point for, um, for, for transit from low Earth orbit to the moon, okay? So the idea is the um, uh, craft would, would go to Gateway dock. A lander would descend to the moon. Uh, they, you know, the, the expedition would spend some time on the lunar surface, and then the lander would come back to Gateway, and the transit vehicle would return to the Earth. That's, so those architectures are, are in play now. There are also other architectures, mission architectures, that would provide for direct injection of lunar orbit, sort of like Apollo did, landing and then return to the Earth without interfacing with Gateway. That's a possibility. With regard to the long-range view of Mars, there are no plans and no contemplation of plans within NASA to do any sort of one-way missions to Mars. That's, I don't think that's within the ethical construct of what the NASA or the U.S. government would, would want to do. That, that's been espoused by private firms, I believe, but um, we're not we're not actually designing seriously designing mission architectures to Mars. I mean, they do exist, but but not in the programmatic sense at this point. We're not bending hardware to do that. We are bending hardware to go back to the moon. Um, but but the concept of operations to Mars would be expeditionary to begin with, with either uh, uh, first orbiting the planet and then returning, and then maybe landing for a month or landing for 12 to 18 months. But, but all of those architectures uh, do require a return. Um, and, and that's pretty much how far we've gotten with regard to uh, um, firm planning at this point. So you mentioned it, but are we closer then to doing a more long-term one-way mission to the moon? Is that something that's um, more uh, seriously spoken about? Well, there's no one-way mission to the moon, but yes, the um, the objective, the Orion spacecraft, and um, the, the service module that accompanies the, the Orion spacecraft, and the gateway station, and the lunar lander, the, the Orion is actually has flown without crew. It will fly with crew in the next couple of years, uh, along with the really big rocket that's supposed to that has ability to get material not only into orbit but onto the moon. Um, and um, uh, but but those are all expeditionary to the lunar surface and back again. Okay. 
Um, and then Mars is the next step after that. But yeah, those, the, those, the, the vehicles are, are beyond conceptual. Some of them, like the, the Orion spacecraft, for instance, that's sort of the core of all this is real. And um, the, the rocket that, that this would go to space on is real. It's going to be, the engines are going to be, basically it's, it's a five uh, space shuttle engines with two five-segment solid rocket boosters with a, with a capsule or a payload on top of that configuration. And it's going to be eye-watering. And if you get a chance to go to one of those launches, please do, because it's going to be bigger than the Saturn launches of the 60s and 70s. It's really going to be amazing. Uh, but, but yeah, those, those things, uh, uh, unless they somehow get derailed, um, they'll be a reality in the next few years. So shifting gears back to just, you know, current day medicine, um, there's a lot that has been developed or researched in space or in the environments, as Dr. Scott Connor mentioned, that are mimicking space as austere environments that have actually impacted um, what we do in our regular daily lives with medicine. So um, what can you guys pinpoint like over the course of your careers, things from NASA or from space medicine and research that have influenced um, daily medical practice? Yeah, I can think of several things. Um, number one, uh, telemedicine. Uh, yeah, yeah. obviously, you know, our, our paradigm for practicing medicine in space has been telemedicine. There is a crew medical officer who may or may not be a physician, by the way, the surest, one of the surest paths to become a NASA astronaut is to become a NASA flight surgeon. Um, very often in, in the, when NASA selects a class of astronauts, there will be at least one NASA flight surgeon in that class. So that's a great way to become an astronaut if you're, if uh, docs are interested in doing that. But um, uh, so there's a crew medical officer who, if they're not a physician, they are trained. They spend time in the emergency room, learn how to start IVs, learn how to do intubations, learn how to do some, you know, um, uh, run a code and so on and so forth. Um, but it's very much a telemedicine paradigm to back to the flight surgeon and then to, to any specialty we need back on earth. And, and that, so telemedicine was kind of born in NASA in, in the sixties, in seventies. And I, and I think that's certainly uh, translated. Most of the telemedicine pioneers are, are in one way or another connected to NASA and then intensive care unit telemetry. So that stems back from our monitoring of the early astronauts. So Bones in his ICU, I mean, you, you walk into an ICU today and it's starting to look kind of like Bones in his, in his fancy medical unit, right? With all the monitors and the physiologic monitoring that's going on. And all of that that, that is monitored remotely from the nurse's station and so on and so forth. So NASA had a lot to do with that from the early days of, of tele, you know, tele, telemetry monitoring of the astronaut's health. Um, and beyond that, um, you know, bone demineralization on space in space, I think, did did help to focus um, cognizance uh, with regard to aging and and the osteoporosis liability. Um, in some ways, prolonged space flight is an excellent model for aging. 
Uh, and so I think that that some of the folks that did some of the research on on exercise and and uh, the mitigation of bone demineralization with exercise, and to some extent the development of pharmacologic treatments like bisphosphonates, I think NASA helped with that. So so there are and and then uh, uh, pioneering. Uh, ultrasound in extreme environments, like Dr. Scott Connor mentioned earlier, you've done a lot of work on that, and that will be the primary diagnostic modality that we take, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, both to the moon and, and, and on to Mars. And I think that that uh, in both rural medical applications and um, remote environmental medical applications, I think NASA's had a hand in that. And there are many other things like Velcro, for instance, you know, that are everyday items that, that, that were really developed to try to keep things stuck in one place when they tend to float away in the spacecraft. So, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of uh, work that in a lot of ways NASA's contributed through the years. Forecasting even further out, I, I remember when I was a kid, I watched a lot of Star Trek. I'm not sure if you guys um, watched Star uh, Trek. Oh, yeah, all Star the time. Trek. I still do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's always fun to see Bones with his with his scanner and, like, these fancy, uh, you know, sick bays on, on the Starship Enterprise. And now I also think, you know, with, um, President Trump has, um, you know, created the Space Force. Um, actually, perhaps Do- Dr. Williams, you could talk to us about uh, what what you see with the development of the Space Force and kind of where you see um, more organized, like military type um, uh, operations going in space and how how that affects um, the medical side of things. Sure. The uh, the space force is primarily aimed at at the, um, United States assets in space that are not related to human spaceflight. You know, geosynchronous our our, uh, our GPS series of of uh, satellites, our communication satellites, our um, uh, our geosynchronous Earth observing satellites, and a whole bunch of stuff that's super secret that I don't know about and I don't want to know about, right? Um, so, you know, we ask ourselves this question, and my, my successor, Dr. J.D. Polk, who's current chief medical officer of NASA, is talking to the military about, about the role of human spaceflight in, in the Space Command. But unless you postulate an orbiting platform with, that's militarized, um, for whatever reason, which, which would be an incredibly vulnerable piece of hardware, okay, um, then the, the, you're limited to suborbital sorts of, you know, a vehicle that could, that could fly suborbital and get to any place in the world with a very small team of special operators within 15 to 30 minutes, right? I mean, that, that's, and there, there may be a period of microgravity associated with that. Uh, so that's kind of where we are with regard to the Space Force at this time. Now, will that evolve into um, Star Trek, you know, whatever it is, uh, what Star Trek's uh, United Federation of Planets and right. and, yes. and all that? I, it, it may be, you know, who knows, over over the, the coming decades and and even longer but but at the moment it's concentrated on things that are not human spaceflight related 
All right, Megan, do you have any other uh, uh, questions of substance? Because if not, we'll, we'll move on to the uh, final five questions. These are uh, less medicine-related questions, I just, and they're more questions to get to know uh, our, our guests. So the first question uh, that we like to ask is, are you big into reading? And if so, uh, please share with us uh, a book that you're currently reading or perhaps the book that you last finished. Well, I love to read. And uh, I have been reading a science fiction tome called Seven Eves. And it is uh, very, it's got a lot of technical explanation of how the world works in this particular world. And I will probably be dipping into it off and on for the next 10 years because it's complicated. Um, I, I love reading science fiction and, and I do love to read. For recreational reading, I, I guess I've regard that as sort of mind candy, if you will. I read a variety of things, um, science fiction sorts of things. Um, there, there's a series of World War II historical fiction uh, tracing the Philippine campaigns on 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 into the Cold War that I'm reading currently. That's based in the, for the U.S. Navy. I'm not a Navy fellow. I was in the Air Force, but I got a lot of friends from the nuclear Navy, and that's always of interest to me. Uh, but but that is simply to shift the mind into neutral and uh, and uh, rest a little bit before engaging on the next uh, set of demands. Um, so did you, um, when you both were operating, did you listen to music in the operating room? Um, and if so, what? And if not, what do you like to listen to? I, I did not listen to music in the operating room. If music was playing or if people were talking, I usually completely tuned it out. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a matter of focus and concentration. Um, I like Billy Joel. I like uh, River of Dreams. I guess you would probably call them golden oldies. Classics. Classics, yes. I, I don't even remember music in the operating room. I simply remember focusing on whatever I had to do and trying to do it with the, uh, in the most safe and efficient manner I could, I guess. But, um, but it was usually some variety of, of soft rock, popular music, classics, as you would, as you would say. You know, since we, since uh, neither of you guys listen to music in the OR, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject maybe a question 2.5 because I'm actually kind of interested in it. So I went to space camp when I was young. Uh, there was free-dried astronaut food. I, I've gathered since then that that is not actually what astronauts eat. Um, I would like to know what astronauts eat or what NASA typically provides in terms of meals on, on the ISS, for example. And I'd like to know if you guys have tried anything and what your favorite food uh, among the commonly provided NASA offerings. We actually had a meal. Uh, this was, I, I don't know if you even knew about this, Rich, but in the early days of doing Safe Passage, uh, we actually had a meal provided to us by uh, the nutritionists who provide the food for the ISS. And it was astronaut food. And it was really quite good. Um, I think that food has gone a long way. I, I have never eaten any of that so-called astronaut ice cream that you buy at the Aerospace Museum. <laughs> I just can't imagine what that tastes like. But the stuff they served to us that day, and this was about uh, 20 years ago, so I'm sure it's even better, was pretty darn good. 
Um, I don't know if they go so far as to actually send uh, some real potatoes like they did in the Martian. You know, that was what he seeded his potatoes from was <laughs> the potatoes they sent them for the Thanksgiving dinner. But the food was really pretty good. Yeah, the last thing anybody at the Johnson Space Center was going to do was feed me. I think they would actually hope I starved and <laughs> faded out and went away. But anyway, because I was kind of the regulatory guy, right? But anyway, um, yeah, I, I can tell you this, that it, it's come a long way since the paste, the tubes of toothpaste type looking stuff in, the, in pouches of the Gemini program. And, and it's there is a propensity for most people to not pay attention to their nutrition and actually lose weight in space. So the NASA has invested heavily in trying to make food that is palatable and, and good. Uh, there is choice that, that's provided for the astronauts, personal choice with regard to what foods they want. There's a lot of, um, I think taste in space is, is a little dumbed down. So, you know, condiments and spicy condiments are, are very, very popular in space. And it's an international mission, right? So there's Japanese food, there's American food, there's Russian food. And, and there's, um, and I do know, uh, my astronaut friends have told me that the American food is very popular amongst the other crew members. So which, which would, would be consistent with my experience in dining on Russian cuisine, going to the Institute of Biomedical Problems in Moscow. I distinctly remember my, my first meal there contained a, a plate of clear gelatin. And I, I, I looked at that and I thought, okay, I can do this. But within the gelatin was embedded a fish and the fish had a facial expression. It was an entire fish. I looked at the fish, the fish looked at me, and I don't know which one of us was more surprised. But <laughs> so the, the American food is very popular. <laughs> uh, America wins again. Love it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, so I really love this direction of these questions. So we're going to change up one of our typical questions as well to in space, what do you think would be the most fun sport or activity to play? We'd just like to be able to swim through zero G, microgravity. I, I watch these movies and I watch movies of the astronauts and I watch Hollywood movies and I see them just sort of effortlessly going down these corridors and changing direction. And I would just love to do that. For me, that would be the most fun I think I could have. Well, um, I, I guess uh, uh, floating M&Ms out there and flying through space and, and grabbing the M&Ms, you know, that's a, that's a popular thing for astronauts to do on video. Um, I don't know from a sports perspective, I guess I'd have to agree with, with Dr. Scott Connor, the, you know, the freedom that you, you have with regard to, um, you know your your ability to to transit the the space station, and and it's most of the spacecraft are built in, as tubes, right? So there's really no up, there's no down. It's whatever your orientation of choice is, I guess. But the ability to do that would be would be would be very fantastic. Question number four: We'd like to know your favorite vacation spots. 
love the ocean. I grew up on the coast. I miss the ocean. I live in the in the heartland of America in Iowa now, and uh, I really love just going anywhere where there's a uh, sea coast. And I was born in the UK, so I, I very much enjoy going back to England from time to time, seeing how it's changed, getting into the countryside, and uh, visiting places that I've that I've visited before that I lived. So, uh, so the UK, England, is and, and Scotland are my choices of vacation. Your careers have gone in um, trajectories that are fascinating. Your involvement with um, space medicine is very unique. Not a lot of surgeons, especially, can boast your resumes. Um, so, if you were to go back and give advice to yourself starting off in your career, or give advice to current um, trainees. What is that one piece of advice that you'd give them? The one thing I would want to leave uh, trainees with is don't be afraid. Uh, I used to have something I called the rule of threes. I would try three different things and one of them might work. And I, I almost felt like if they all worked, I wasn't aiming high enough. And if none of them worked, I was aiming too high. So I think particularly when you're starting out, um, be like the kayaker going down the Whitewater uh, River. Follow the water. Don't try to avoid the rocks. Just follow the water where it takes you, and you'll be in for an amazing ride. And uh, I, I would 100% agree. Um, I When I was... After my surgery internship, uh, I, I had a choice of whether to go back into the operational Air Force as a flight surgeon and then do aerospace medicine training after that, or to press on with general surgery residency. General surgery residency is a hard, hard life. Uh, it is now, and it, and it was then. We were in the hospital every other night on call, 120 hours a week. It was all surgery all the time. We lived it. We breathed it. Uh, it, was, it was our lives. And I chose the hard road. And by choosing the hard road, I think I, I gained skills and I gained experience that allow me to swim almost in, in the deep end of any pool you can imagine. I don't regard myself as a very smart person, to be honest. I, I mean, in a room full of NASA scientists or in a room full of Institute of Medicine committee members, I'm probably the dumbest guy in the room. I'm, I'm effective, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm highly effective, especially in, in stressful operational type situations. But by by continuing in surgery, by taking the hard road, by not being afraid of the rocks and going down through the rapids, like Dr. Scott Connor just said, I landed at a place that gave me incredible flexibility and incredible ability to make a choice. I could hold my head high in any company that I ever was in. And, and I think paved the way for, for me to do with my life what I have been consummately lucky to do in, in all the different things that I've done and I'm still doing. I've gone from, from a very, the highest acuity of care you can almost do, which is, you know, general surgery on very sick people that end up in the ICU and intensivist work and all that. I've gone from that world now to through our aerospace medicine to the world of public health where we're dealing with a pandemic. So um, I didn't get that skill set by, by not taking the hard road but it's been a great, great experience. 
Thank you so much for your, your uh, words of advice, uh, your wisdom to all of our listeners. Um, and thank you so much for coming onto the show uh, with us on a, on a weekend of all things and taking your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you all the very best. And same here. Thank you so much for having us and, and really, uh, really wish you the best in your careers. Until next time, dominate the day. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.